Thanks for listening to one of our Sunday messages at Crossroads Bible Church. We gather on Sunday mornings at 9.15 and 10.45 a.m. To find out more about our church or to connect with any of our ministries, visit our website at crossroadsbible.org. We hope you enjoy the message and pray it encourages you as you follow Jesus. If you got a Bible, we're in Matthew chapter 6, everybody. We are in the Lord's Prayer. This is week three of our six-week series in the Lord's Prayer. And before we get going on today's, I, I think today's is... In the entire scope of the Lord's Prayer, I think this is the most difficult for you and me. And by you and me, I think the one that we're getting into today is the hardest for us to connect with because of where we live and how we live. And so before we get there, though, we have to understand that the Lord's Prayer builds on itself a little bit. So the first two weeks, we looked at a couple phrases. Our Father, who's in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And when we looked at kind of the beginning part of the Lord's Prayer, what we saw was that when Jesus says at the beginning, this is how you pray, he's not just saying, pray whatever comes into your head. I don't, I don't know how you pray. I'm a little ADHD, so sometimes it feels like my prayers are all over the place, right? Uh, you're probably way more advanced in prayer than me, but Jesus says, when you pray, here's where we start. We start by recognizing your posture and your perspective of the God you're praying to. And so he says, you say things like our father who is in heaven, who's not here, whose name deserves to be hallowed. What he says is once you recognize the beauty and the bigness and the majesty of God, you want his goodness to descend upon our present place. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, may your kingdom come. What it does at the very beginning, Jesus is saying that your idea of God and your position towards God affects how you pray your petitions to God. Because today we get into petitions. Today we get into the idea of stuff that we ask for, but that has changed because we know God and we know our place before God as his kids. It's this idea that if we understand that God's good is our best good. It changes how we pray. Sinclair Ferguson is an author and a commentator, and he wrote this. He said, so God's glory does not detract from man's life. Instead, his glory is the sun around which the whole of life must revolve if there's to be light of life, light and life of God in our experience. Since we were made for his glory, we will always malfunction whenever we fail to live that purpose and according to the maker's instructions. What he's saying is know your place before God, know, have a proper perspective of God, and may that filter down into what you ask of God. May that change how you pray. And so today we get into this one phrase, this to me difficult phrase, this gut-punching phrase to me. Today we get to talk about, give us this day our daily bread. And I think this one's going to be really difficult for us. It was for me. So when I was in college, uh, the, the further up you get in college, when you go to an art school, you have to write a lot of papers, and most of mine were theology, right? So I remember in most junior and senior level courses in college, each class, a three-hour class, carried with it an expectations of papers. You had two or three five-page papers in the semester. You had at least one 10 to 15-page paper, and you had one 25-page paper that you had to write on all these books that you had to read and research, right? And so I was pretty good at the big papers. If you don't know it yet, I, 
I am not usually ever at a loss for words, all right? So there was a, a, a prof, he was the academic dean at Moody, and I took his class because I heard it was the best, and it was an amazing class. And I remember this was, this one assignment he gave was the hardest assignment I did in all of my four years at Moody, and it was harder than any 25-page paper I wrote. He said, here's a book, here's a metric for how I want you to review the book, and you have 200 words, and that includes your name. He said, for every word you go over, I deduct a letter grade. Every word. Do you know how hard it was for me to be concise, everybody? It was difficult because it went against how I was brought up. It went against how I wrote all the other papers. It went against my culture, and it went against my character to do something like that. I'm a verbose guy, and I was taught in theology, and I was taught in in hermeneutic classes, and in homiletic classes, preaching classes, that the more words you use, the better. Don't use two if you can use ten. That just means you're not trying, right? And you guys are saying, please use two, but not today, right? So it's this idea that it was difficult because of how I was raised and who I was. When we say today, when Jesus says, give us this day our daily bread, the prayer that he's asking us to pray is one of implicit need and acknowledgement of who he is. And it's going to be difficult because I don't think most of us know what need is. It's going to be difficult because we are a culture, because God is gracious, we are a culture that has too much, not too little. And that's okay, guys. I'm not up here railing against the culture of too much. I think that shows that God is gracious. What I'm saying is sometimes we have to have tough conversations about how too much changes our disposition towards God in negative ways. And so today we're going to talk about what it means for God to be our daily bread. But we're going to do a little prayer before we get there. Each week at Crossroads, we have two goals on Sunday mornings. We want to know God. We want to get into the scriptures and realize that as much as we study, we're not going to come to the end of who God is because he's bigger than us. And that's a good, good, good thing. And then two, we want to experience God. We want to to experience the God that says that he gave us our emotions, the God that says he gave us our passions. We want to know that God's goodness never ends and experience his goodness this morning when we worship. And so we're going to take some time and we're going to pray before we get into the sermon. I'm going to ask that you quietly to yourself ask God to to shape and mold your heart because the Spirit's working in you. And I want to ask that that you pray that the Spirit might teach you something about the character and the goodness of God because that's not all on me, that's on you too. And then we want to pray, I'm going to ask that you pray for me a little bit today. I, uh, I've been a little sick all weekend, and so I got a little head fog going on, so I'm really praying this makes sense this morning, all right, everybody? So I love it. I need your prayers this morning, all right? So let's, let's pray together. God, I'm thankful um, just for the space that we have to meet together and to worship together and to celebrate change together and to open your scripture and to find the depths of you that is never-ending together this morning. I pray that as we open your word that you teach us. If you're comfortable, I'd ask that to yourself, you just silently ask that the spirit might shape and mold um, the scripture in your life today, that you might speak to, be spoken to by God, and hear and understand um, a God who is personal and near this morning. I'd ask that you pray for me, that my words might be clear, that God might use them, that God might use them that we might today leave this place with more of a passion for God than when we came into it because the word has been taught. 
pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. So it goes like this. Give us this day our daily bread. And kind of the predicate here, the object is bread in our text this morning. And look, here's the deal. We got to understand what bread was in the first century. Because in our world, bread is beginning to be the cause of all evil. Right? We're running from it. Gluten-free is the way to go. Gluten tries to kill my wife. I get it. But in the first century world, bread was different than how we see bread today. In the first century world, actually throughout the scriptures, and not just scriptures, most other religion, bread stands for implicit need. Bread, when you see the word bread, it literally means that which you need to sustain physical life. And we see evidences of that in the Bible itself. So in Exodus 16, what happens if you don't know the story is you have about three to five million Jews and God brought them out of Egypt and they start wandering around the desert. And as they just saw God deliver them out of the desert, they stop down and they say to their leader, Moses, they say, God brought us here to starve. We don't have what we need to sustain life. This is Exodus 16, two through four. The Israelites said to them, if only we died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by pots of meat, when we ate bread to the full, for you have brought us into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. <laughs> then the Lord said to Moses, I'm going to rain bread from heaven for you and the people will go out and gather the amount for each day. So when he says, I'm going to gain or gather or give bread to you, what he means is I'm going to give you enough that you might not die. I'm going to sustain your life. And if you know the rest of the story, it's this stuff called manna. It's stuff that literally they'd wake up in the morning and it would just be like dew on the ground and they'd go and they'd pick it up for their rations for the given day. Bread wasn't just bread. Bread wasn't just carbs. Bread was literally what was and did sustain physical life. We see it in Jesus. Jesus got baptized. God says, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. And then he disappears into the wilderness for 40 days to do business with God and to be tempted by Satan. And when he's at the end of it, 40 days later, what we see is that his physical life is difficult because he hasn't ate anything in 40 days. And Satan attacks him. And this is in Matthew 4, verse 2. After he fasted 40 days and 40 nights, Jesus was famished because he's human. It says, the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become bread. Again, that idea of bread isn't just what we think of bread. It's command these stones to become what you need to keep going because you are famished. You haven't given your body what it needs to keep on going. So bread signifies need to sustain life in the Old and New Testament, but it's more than that. Because Jesus comes back in that, in that next verse and says, but he answered, it's written, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. This is what Jesus does, and this is what I love. Jesus says, I know you think bread signifies the sustenance that you need for physical life, but it's more than that. Bread isn't just physical needs, it's spiritual needs. Because as a, as a people... I think especially as a people here and now, after the Enlightenment period that started in about 1705 or so, what happened is we started to separate the idea of the physical and the spiritual. They became two different conversations for us. We have our physical life and our spiritual life, and those two things aren't intertwined. But throughout the scriptures, God says they are. 
Throughout the scriptures, God says the physical and the spiritual are both being restored. I care about both. It's how we defined heaven a couple weeks ago, that God is restoring the earth, not getting rid of the earth because he created the physical and said it was good. But we have this this temptation to separate the physical and the spiritual that I don't think God ever says is good. So a, a couple weeks ago, we were talking at a staff meeting and it turns out both students are talking about uh, sexuality in the next couple weeks. And then Moms Together is a group of young moms with young kids that meets here, about a hundred or so of them on, two, on Wednesdays and Thursdays. And once a year, they talk about sex and they talk about what it means. They talk about it in marriage. And Delin was a little nervous because she was leading this conversation. And she said, I'm nervous about leading this conversation. I said, Delin, if you need some help, I would love to be there. And she looked at me and I said, give me three extra markers and a whiteboard. <laughs> and shockingly, she didn't ask me to come. So I, um, I said, hey, how'd it go? And she said, it went really well. She talked about it the last two weeks. And I said, what'd you talk about? And she said, well, I, I really spent some time talking about how sex is one of those things that God gave us that intertwines, once again, both the physical and the spiritual. That God says, hey, when this thing happens, I'm going to bring together the spirituality of you and of your wife or your husband and the physicality, and they're both going to intertwine and intermingle together to make it this physical and spiritual event that we were created for, which is saying is that Sex is an indicator that we weren't supposed to separate the physical and the spiritual. And Jesus, when he talks about need, does the same thing. So they say, hey, do you need bread? And he says, bread is more than just physical. When Satan tempts him, he said, yeah, you live by more than just bread, but by the word of God, meaning your spirit needs to know the goodness of God and the physical sustenance isn't anything without the spiritual sustenance. He says it to the Pharisees a couple chapters later, in John 6.35, they said to him, um, hey, what, what about this bread that Moses gives do we need? And he says in verse 30, 35 of chapter 6, he says, I'm the bread of life. The one who comes to me will never go hungry, and the one who believes in me will never be thirsty. What Jesus does is he looks at people that saw a physical need and says, you see a physical need, but I'll tell you it points to a spiritual need too. What he says is that the physical and the spiritual aren't divorced, but they're intertwined. It's really easy for us to see physical needs and ignore spiritual ones. But God says your physical need points to a spiritual need. Just like you need to eat, you need God. Just like you need God to provide, you need God to forgive and redeem and restore. Don't forget that. Don't forget those two things are intertwined. Because it's really easy just to look at the physical and say that's all we need. And Jesus says no. I created both physical and spiritual, and I intend to redeem and restore both physical and spiritual. He does it again in Matthew 26 when he's going to the cross. While they were eating, Jesus took the bread, and after giving thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and says, take this, eat, this is my body. So he takes something that signifies physical needs, sustenance of life, and he says, but let it point to the fact that I'm giving you the more than just physical life, but spiritual life as well. It's this beautiful picture when he says, ask for, may I be your daily bread, that it's not just about what we eat, but about what we need physically and spiritually. And that's the beginning of the gospel. We looked at it when we looked at the Beatitudes last fall. 
That's why when Jesus starts this whole section in Matthew 5 to 7 that we've been in for about nine months and will be for the next few, that's why he starts the entire section by saying, blessed are the poor in spirit. Because if you don't know that you need physically and spiritually, I can't do anything about it. Jesus says, until you realize that you need something, I can't be your provider. He says, you have to start with this understanding that the family of God knows that they need God in the first place. So he says, when you pray, understand who God is, and then might that inform the fact that you need me? He says, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Our Father who art in heaven, be my daily bread. It's a fundamental recognition of need, both physically and spiritually. But what I love about this prayer, but this part in the prayer, is that he says, our daily bread. Here's the deal. We talked about it when we talked about our Father, but when he says, give us this day, our daily bread, there's this fundamental tying together of the people of God. What it means and why this text is hard for us is because we see things through an individualistic lens and Jesus says, it's not just about my daily bread, but our daily bread. He asks us once again to move from the me to the we. What he says is, you can't pray for my good if I'm not praying for the good of the person next to me. Jesus fundamentally calls us into the needs of others in this prayer. I like how N.T. Wright said it. He said, it's impossible, truly, to pray for our daily bread without being horribly aware of the millions who didn't have bread yesterday, who don't have any today, and in human terms, are unlikely to have any tomorrow either. It's this idea that when he says, pray for your daily bread, pray for our daily bread, it broadens our scope outside of us. And just as a very quick caveat, because I, I, I would go there if it was me in my head. If you're anything like me, you're probably thinking, I know we want to pray for God's daily provision, but people die every day of not having enough food. Just nuts and bolts, people die every day without having enough food. And that's true, they do. But, but here's the deal, and why I think God is still good in the middle of that, one, is that it's not because we don't have enough food on this earth. <laughs> it's not a provision problem. It's a how we delegate problem. For the past two decades, the rate of global food production has increased faster than the rate of global um, population. The world already produces more than one and a half times enough food to feed everyone on the planet. I think what he's calling us to do in this text is to remember that it's not just a me thing, it's a we thing. And he's saying, join in, celebrate, delegate, and provide for those around you. But it's hard because sometimes when we have too much, we make things about us and we forget the we element of it. The more that we have, it's often hard to look outside of, of the me. I remember growing up, I went to a small private school and... I read this article last week, I think it was. I love, I, I love these little like BuzzFeed, remember what life was like if you were a 90s child things, you know what I'm talking about? And they have these school cafeteria foods that I haven't seen since the school cafeteria. I'm like, oh my gosh, I can taste it in my mouth, right? Cardboard has never tasted so good. And they had this one article that said like the top three or five or eight things that kids in the 90s bought in the vending machines. And I don't know if this is going to resonate with you, but the number one form of currency when I was in fifth, sixth, and seventh grade was this package of I don't know what kind of food it was called the hot fries, right? If you guys know what the hot fries is, it looked like a fry. It did not taste like a fry. It had some moderate spice to it. And it was some kind of neon nuclear orange, Okay. 
And so in my school, whoever got hot fries that day would just open the bag and wait to barter. Literally, people would come and be like, dude, can I have a hot fry? A hot fry. And they'd be like, what do you got? You know? And you would go through your lunch and try to trade like pudding or a Pop-Tart for a hot fry. And you had the one kid that said like, I can give you half my peanut butter and jelly. And they'd get laughed out of the cafeteria, right? And so... He had this idea that I came from a, a pretty affluent family and God is gracious and good. But when you come from places where you have more than you need, you forget that it's not just a me thing, but a we thing. And the more places I've been to that had less, much, much more readily shared with others. I remember when I got into college, I served at a nonprofit in um, one of the poor parts of Chicago. And this kid actually... He was a fifth grader, I think, and he, he actually went and bought some hot fries. And I was like, oh my gosh, I haven't had those in a while. And I said, can I have one? And I was, I was fully, I was 19, I think, I was fully willing to barter and trade, you know? And he gave me like half the bag. <laughs> he said, yeah, sure, here you go. I remember when I was in Africa, five, six, seven years ago, I forget when, I was teaching a group of pastors, training a group of pastors, and these guys don't have much. <laughs> they don't have much of anything. And I remember the first day I was there, I said to this one guy, he had this shirt that was just ornate. It had, it had these white cuffs that had these little dazzly things on there. It was a little pink, you know, and I just said, hey man, that's a great shirt. He said, thanks. We're leaving on Friday, six days later, and he comes up to me and he hands me a, like a, a bag, an old bag. And he said, here you go, brother. And I said, what's this? And I looked in it and it, it was the shirt, you know. And I said, I can't, I said, I can't, I can't take this. He said, you said you liked it. Here you go. It's yours. Here's the deal. I felt so guilty for a couple reasons. One, I, I didn't love the shirt. I just thought it looked good on him. <laughs> for being honest, I haven't worn it. Uh, t- two, I have shirts with tags still on them in my closet. You know, It seems to me that the more we have, the more willing we are, the less we're able to see that this is a we thing, not a me thing. And so if we're talking about when Jesus says, give us our daily bread, I can't help but be reminded, I can't help but ask the question, how much of my prayers are about my good or how much are about our good? How much are God giving to me what I want or how much is me praying for what we need as a people? Am I stepping into the needs of others? Because that's what Jesus is calling me to do. Martin Luther says it like this, therefore, To pray, give us all the people of our land daily bread is to pray against wanton exploitation and business and trade and labor, which crushes the poor and deprives them of their daily bread. It's a simple idea that when we acknowledge that it's our daily needs, not my daily needs, we're reminded that God's in it for the good of the we, not the me. And as as an individualistic culture in a church in America, I need to be reminded of that. It makes this text hard for me to understand sometimes because it's not my character and it's not my culture often. And so he says, give us this day our daily bread. And it starts with this idea that God says, that Jesus says, we ask God who is our father, who is in heaven, whose name should be hallowed, whose kingdom is good and greater than ours. And we want to come here. We ask that guy to give. We ask that guy to give us stuff. And real quick, when we say give, it doesn't mean that we say, God, give me this and I'm gonna go sit over here in the chair and wait for you to provide. That is not the truth. All throughout the scripture, work is holy. Work is worship. God made us to work, not to be lazy. 
Work is not a byproduct of sin in our world. Work is something we were supposed to do well before sin got there. And God looked at us and said, cultivate, rule, and reign over all the creation. Work is a good, good thing. I think we'll work one day in heaven, but I think it'll be more like that phrase when it says, if you love what you do, you never work a day in your life. Because we will fully be working in the passion and purposes of God for the people of God. And so I think when he says, give us this day our daily bread, it is not in any way an excuse for us as Christians just to pray and not do anything about it or work towards it. I think there's this beautiful tension between us working towards something and God providing at the same time. So he says, give us this day our daily bread. What he means when he says, give us this day our daily bread, is he challenges our perspective of where our stuff comes from. He challenges our perspective of who gives or if we feel like we get. In James 1, it says, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. Here's the deal. The more that I have and the more that I accomplish and the more that I achieve in my life, the more I start to believe that I'm the cause of it. and God isn't a good giver. I think it's difficult because we live in a place and a time and a space that convinces us that we have what we have because we went out and got it. And when we do that, we cut out this narrative that God's a good giver. And I'm not saying that you didn't earn what you have, but I'm saying that if you did earn what you had, it's because God still gave. Where did you get what you have? fundamentally, if we don't start from a place that what we have is from God, regardless of if you studied well or went to school or got the good job, if we don't start from a place of a God who gives freely and greatly, then what we do is we create the wrong culture. If we forget that God is our provider, we cultivate pride where there should be humility, and we create a culture of self-sufficiency over God-dependency. What we do is we start to believe that we've earned, that we're good enough, that we can. And it seems like the beginning of the gospel is us recognizing that God gives and we need. It seems like that's what Jesus is reminding us here when he says, pray like this. Let me tell you why that's important. It's because I think it makes our world better. And I think it increases our joy. So it it seems um, that it'd go the other way around, that if I can tell everybody that everything I have is because I'm good enough that my joy would be even greater, but I don't think that's how that works. I think, I think what happens is our joy is greater if we can roll up our joy into something greater than us. I think it gives us exponentially more joy to know that our good things come from a God who's bigger and better than us and will be there long after us. And I know that because now I have a kid, right? So one of the beautiful and unexpected joys for me in having a kid is, is watching our, my mother and Sarah's mother and father and my father with our kid. So I, uh, we do kind of a hodgepodge babysitting, full frontal attack with my family and my kid. She's six months, like in two days, right? And so Sarah works from home two days a week. She worked it out with her company. I work from home on Fridays. Um, and then my mom takes a day and Sarah's mom takes a day, right? So full frontal attack, all hands on deck. Our our, my in-laws and my mom are phenomenally gracious. And I remember, I remember the first day that my mom took care of my kid a few months back after Sarah went back to work for the first time. And we were just asking questions about how it's going to go because we didn't know, you know, we didn't know, we didn't know. 
We didn't know what it'd be like to leave her with her. We didn't know if my mom really wanted to do this. She has a job too, and she takes off a day of work a week just to come take care of our kid. And we were so afraid that the ask would be too big, and we were just terrified. And I remember Sarah telling me this. Sarah went to pick up our kid or went home. She gets home before me most days. And she got home, and she looked at my mom, and she said, how was it? My mom looked at her in the face and said, I think this was the best day of my life, right? And I thought for the first time, that's weird. We spent a lot of days together, mom, but that's okay. <laughs> I, did not, I did not say that out loud. You want to talk about the, you know, when I came into the world, that's, I'm a middle child. I'm always going to default to how this affects me, everybody. I need this prayer, okay? <laughs> I just think it's so beautiful. One of the overwhelmingly good joys of having a child is seeing how joyful it makes my mom and my dad and Sarah's mom and her dad and rolling up the joy of being a parent into good parents that we had. It's this beautiful idea that we get to be good parents because God gave us good parents and we can roll that joy up and say, look at a God who gives more than I deserve. It increases our joy when we make things not about us. It doesn't decrease it, but sometimes, sometimes when we have so, so much, we forget, we forget, we forget that we didn't get God gave all good things. I need that reminder because so often it's really easy to convince myself that I have what I have because I'm good enough, that I have what I have because I've earned it, when really, sure, I've earned some things, and sure, I'm good at some things, but they're because God is good to me. Where does that start? It always starts with the God who gives. So he says, give us this day our daily bread. And the last word I want to look at with you guys is the idea of, of daily. That word in the Greek is kind of a hard one to translate because it's not found anywhere else. It's actually not found until a couple hundred years later. Uh, and so what that means is you just got to kind of look at context clues and figure it out. And when it says daily, it's translated one of two ways. One is God give me what I need for today. Or two is God give me what I need for tomorrow's day. And it would depend on when you prayed it. So if you pray at night before you go to bed, you'd say, God, give me what I need for tomorrow's day to sustain tomorrow. If you prayed it in the morning, you'd say, God, give me what I need for today's day to get me through today. And it, what it does is it fundamentally shows two different sides of, of the coin when it comes to need. You have people in this world that absolutely need God because they need God. Like, I will not make it through today if God doesn't show up. I was talking to a friend of mine this week about this message, and she said, you know, it reminds me of, and she read an article about after the Korean War, they would give orphans pieces of white bread to sleep with because the orphans didn't believe that they were going to get any food tomorrow or make it through the next day. It's a different kind of need. It's a need that says, if God doesn't show up, I literally will not live. It's a need that says, I need God to provide physically and spiritually in my everyday or might not have another one. I think about the first time I went to Haiti. This was CBC probably 10 years ago. I remember like it was yesterday because I hadn't seen poverty until I went there. I didn't know what need was. I thought I did until I went there. And you go and you see these kids with distended bellies and rust-colored hair because they don't have enough food. And you realize for the first time what need is. And I realized that I didn't need things like they needed things. We don't need things like they need things because we have so much. And again, that is not bad. It just sometimes shapes how we hear God give us our day, this day our daily bread. 
Our struggle isn't with our fear of being fed today. It's, for, it's because we have so much, we forget that we need God every day. We just forget. For the first time, a couple of years ago, Bloomberg came out and said that we're going to see more ill effects in America of overeating as opposed to malnutrition or undereating in this country. We come from a place, from a context of having too much, not too little. And I see it all the time, right? It amazes me every time I buy an avocado. It amazes me. Do you know that we are the first people in the history of the world to have whatever we want, whenever we want, wherever we want? This week I read several poems about strawberries, right? From like the early 18-1900s because strawberries came in season for like three weeks once a year and people would look forward to strawberry season. They would write about it. They would dream about it because this is when strawberries came in season and they recognized how beautiful it was. I can have a strawberry anytime I want. I get mad if I go into Whole Foods and it's December and they don't have a ripe avocado. You know what I'm talking about? Like we have so much more than we need. I can pick what I want for lunch and dinner, when I want it for lunch and dinner, no matter the time, the place, or the season. What that does is it causes us to take for granted the daily need and the graces of God that we miss. I was talking with a friend of mine a couple years ago. We're watching the news and, you know, the news is the news. They lead with five bad stories of bad things happening and then they wrap up the night with one semi-heart feeling, you know, warming stories. You can go to bed and think about puppies and good things. And we're in the middle of the bad stuff. And he said, man, I just don't understand why we don't see more of the goodness of God. Like, where is God? I said, what do you mean, where is God? He said, I just don't see him. I said, okay. I said, yeah, that's tough. I said, but you went to the grocery store today. (laughs) And you bought whatever you needed. So you have a family that loves you. Right now, we're watching a television in a house that isn't ours, that costs more than most people make in 10 years across the world. So the problem with not knowing that we actually need God every day is we miss the everyday graces of God. And so when God says, hey, may this be your daily bread every single day, what he's trying to do is to get us to remember that we need him because if we forget that we need him, we take his graces for granted. We do. We don't see him anymore. But that's our MO as people because we don't want to be dependent upon anything because if we are dependent upon God, it's not a good thing. It's a crutch, right? It's from the beginning of time. It's from the Tower of Babel that Nick talked about last week when they said, let us build something that we can prove, that we can do, that we might not need anything else. Go back to manna in the Old Testament. God said, I'm going to pour down bread from heaven. Take what you need for today. And they didn't want to do that because they were afraid they might not have what they needed for tomorrow. And so if you look at Exodus 16, 20 and 21, this is what the people did. However, some of them paid no attention to Moses. They kept part of it until morning the next day. But it was full of maggots and began to smell. So Moses was angry with them. Each morning, everyone gathered as much as they needed. And when the sun grew hot, it melted away. It's this idea that we work hard to not depend on something every day. And that's good and great and a grace of God. But if we're in a place where we don't depend on God every day to sustain our life, we miss the graces of God in the everyday. And when God says, make me your daily bread, he's not doing it to make it a burden. It's his gift to us. It's hard to believe we need when we have what we want. We have more than we want. We start to believe that we don't need God. And that's the hard part of this text for us. So the more that I have, 
the more that God has blessed me with. I begin to believe that it's about me. I begin to believe that I did this. I begin to believe that I'm the one that sustains and cultivates and creates the life around me. And God says, that's my role. It always has been. Please, please don't forget that. When you understand the perspective of who I am and, and your position in front of a God who is all these things, realize that you needing me every day isn't a crutch, it's a grace, it's a blessing. Because every day that we come back to God and we say, we need you, we realize the beauty of this moment. That, let's get super cheesy. We realize the present of the present. Come on, everybody, right? It's this beautiful idea that because... I have all that I want and more than I need. I forget that this moment is a gift. I forget that it's a gift from a God who loves to give. I buy into the lie that I didn't need him in the first place. So when Jesus says pray like this, what he's saying, what he's fundamentally saying, he's saying, don't ever forget, don't ever forget that you need me. What he's saying is don't forget that you need me and that I'm a God who loves to give and don't take for granted the grace of God that is today. What he's saying at the beginning, at the end of it all, is that our position and our posture in front of God hopefully leans into him every single day because that's who we were created to need. I like how Augustine put it about this tension between sometimes we have too much or sometimes we have too little and it affects how our dependence or daily dependence on God goes. He said, give me neither poverty that I resent you or riches that I forget you. It's a beautiful sentiment that we're going to ask this morning of how does what we have change how we view our daily dependence on God? Because I, for one, know that when I look at my life and when I look at all I have and when I look at my Costco membership, it's really easy for me to forget that I need God every day. You know? It is, because I have so much. I have so much that's been given from a God who is good, from a God who gives. I have so, so much because God is good. And I need to be reminded every single day in all the ways that I can be that I have so much because God gives so much. And just like he gives physically, he gives spiritually. And God is saying, every day, don't forget. Every single day, don't forget that you need me to sustain life and you need me to sustain your soul. Because God is a good God who gives. So he says, come to me and remember in this moment that I've given you what you need for life because I'm good. And so Jesus says, when you pray, pray like this. He says, when you pray, remember that you need God and pray that God might be your daily bread. Let me pray for us. God, I'm thankful for who you are and I'm thankful for the reminder of the importance that we might depend on you every day. And, and it's really hard for me to see in the life that I li live and in the culture that I live in. And so I'm thankful for that grace, but I'm also thankful for this prayer. And I, I pray that today I, my joy increases because I know that you gave me today and that it's good. My joy increases because my today isn't just about me, but it's about all of us understanding and recognizing you're a good God who gives what we need to be sustained. Might we take joy in that? Might we take joy in understanding who you are? Might we take joy in worshiping that kind of God together? I pray these things in his name. Amen.